This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Windsurfing is um, it's terribly addicting, and I think part of the reason it is, it's, it's a really difficult learning curve. Um, I would say in some ways, kiting is a little bit of a quicker learning curve than windsurfing. Um, but it's probably a little more forgiving on the body. Mm. Just Which, because kiting? of the dynamics you're kiting because you're okay. separated from you know the kites up in the air whereas windsurfing you're hooked in at waist level directly to the sail um but either way they're you know they're pretty demanding they're pretty exciting sports though and we happen to live right in the epicenter of the windsurf and kite scene here in the u.s i'm tom anderson and this is the tom roland podcast What's up, everybody? Welcome to the show today. Man, we're going to learn a little bit about the Pacific Northwest. I've never really fished up there, but I want to. The Deschutes River, the John Day River, all of these places that I've heard about, some really incredible stuff. And I've got a friend, Tom Anderson. He lives out there. He owns a company called Burnowin, and he's going to talk to us today about all kinds of stuff, the health of the salmon fishery, um, sturgeon fishing, all kinds of stuff. So buckle up and get ready for Tom Anderson. Tom, what's up? How are you? I'm well. How are you, Tom? Man, doing great. Tom and Tom. Absolutely. <laughs> How's the weather out there where you are? You know, it's interesting. We, um, it's actually been really cool for, for this time of year for us. Um, the Northwest is a hard thing to ask about weather because we're kind of on what's called the east slope of the Cascades. So usually it's very sunny, hot, and dry here Yeah. Um, all summer. And right now it's been incredibly windy, which is great for the windsurf kiteboard crowd. Right. Yeah. And that's you, right? Do you like to do that? I do. That's part of the reason I ever was originally out here, you know, 30 years ago was that scene specifically, but um, I don't really do it too much anymore. You know, I'm kind of a little bit up there in my years and it's probably good to stay away from. So is there a, um, you know, when I grew up, 
I like to water ski, uh, um, competitive water skiing. So slalom course, mm -hmm. and then I got into barefooting and all of these other things that are very harmful to your body. And then <laughs> along comes a, a technological marvel called wake surfing, and uh, which is much, much easier on your body. So is there kind of a step to where... Or, or is it all or nothing for the kite surfing? Like, is there one that is way easier on the body than, than another? Do you go back to just the windsurfing on a board? Or yeah, is it you know, it's, it's interesting. Windsurfing is, um, it's terribly addicting. And I think part of the reason it is, it's, it's a really difficult learning curve. Um, I would say in some ways, kiting is a little bit of a quicker learning curve than windsurfing. Um, but it's probably a little more forgiving on the body. Mm. Just Which, because kiting? of the dynamics you're, kiting because you're okay. separated from you know the kites up in the air whereas windsurfing you're hooked in at waist level directly to the sail um but either way they're you know they're pretty demanding they're pretty exciting sports though and we happen to live right in the epicenter of the windsurfing kite scene here in the u.s yeah and that's a particular canyon is that right uh it's called the columbia river gorge right and um beautiful area it's one of the only national scenic areas in the country and it cuts a sea level path through the Cascade Mountain Range, which is, of course, a series of volcanoes all down the Pacific Coast. And the cool, uh, dense air on the coast puts pressure up against the coastal range. And then just east of us here, about 20 miles, is High Mountain Desert, which gets really hot, and that air rises. Ah. And so the only sea level path through the Cascades is the gorge. And so it's literally a wind funnel. It's pretty cool dynamic. Yeah. And um, so is there good fishing there? Right in that, in the windy area? It's fantastic. Unfortunately, the wind kind of messes with it a fair bit. Um, but we have, you know, historically, the Columbia River was one of the primary uh, salmon fisheries in, in the country. Um, and it's still a pretty um, impressive fish scene here, but there's a lot of like everywhere, a lot of politics involved. And of course, here in the last century, there's, you know, a lot of dams have been built that have turned it into a, a slow moving river at warmer temperatures, which you know, isn't necessarily great for salmon. No. Um, but there's still pretty incredible runs. Um, as far as fishing regulatory wise, it's, it's a, it's a bit of a quagmire, like a lot of places. Um, and fortunately for us, it's not a huge destination fishing zone just cause you could show up here and get blown off the river for your whole vacation. Not right. Wind. Yeah. So, but, um, we have a lot of tributaries, of course, you know, the big thing here really is the tributary fishing. Yeah. Yeah, and the tributary fishing, uh, that's where the salmon are? Uh, yeah, salmon the in the trout. main stem as well. But, um, you know, the like the Klickitat River, for example, where I live, that's the longest undammed river in the northwest, and it comes off of the glacial fields of Mount Adams. And um, there is a, uh, there's a fish hatchery up at the mountain. Um, they raise primarily Chinook. Um, but there's also an incredible uh, winter steelhead fishery there. They do close that down in the winter, though, to protect the breeding season. Um, but most of the rivers up the Columbia system have, you know, steelhead or Chinook fishery, as well as some incidental trout. Yeah. Um, a lot of the trout might be steelhead smolt that you catch. Huh. Yeah. Yeah. Do you like, uh, do, do you like the, the steelheading, like in the winter? I love it. That's, yeah, that's I, very addicting. I've never done it myself, but I know that the people that I know that are into it are like that. They're really into it. Like that seems yeah, like one addictive. of those things where you just, that gets hold of you. And it's almost, it's like permit fishing for us or bone fishing or tarpon fishing, where it's just like, 
you see people just, man, they just, they go all in. It's all they can think about. Yeah. Yeah, It's pretty addicting here where we are in particular. um, The prime steelhead fishery is pretty much from July through November. um, With kind of height of it, maybe September, October. So they're really summer run fish that breed in the winter. And then as you get more towards the coast, you know, that's the classic, you know, it's sleeting, raining, snowing out, and you're out there for hours, freezing your hands off, <laughs> floating a jig. That's when it's just getting good, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> well, the last time that we had lunch, you were telling me all about all the other um, recreational opportunities that you have there. I mean, mountain biking and and the kiting and the fishing and I mean, it's, mm-hmm. that's one area where you are is, is an area of the country that I have spent almost no time, maybe a couple trips here and there, but man, the way you were describing it, that sounded amazing. I guess I even forgot the skiing. What else do you like to do out there? You know, it's, um, it's a pretty well-rounded place. And that's why so many people here in the gorge, which is about an hour east of Portland, Oregon, where we're located. Um, it draws people from all over the world. And, um, you know, I really moved here back in uh, the mid nineties. Uh, my first exposure here was to the windsurfing scene. And that's why I was coming out here on vacations, but, um, I would have never moved here just for that. Um, you know, you've got such a well-rounded presentation. So, um, one of the things I like to do a lot is, uh, mountain bike and, uh, the biking here is spectacular. I'd say here, Moab and Whistler are probably three of the premier areas in the country. Um, you can do it year round. The ski area on Mount Hood, um, up at Timberline Lodge, which is where the movie The Shining was filmed. Um, That's open all year, pretty much. So there's a lot of ski teams from around the world, Northern Hemisphere teams that spend their summers on Mount Hood training. Um, There's the Wendell Snowboard Camp up there all summer. Wow. And And uh, there's enough enough snow that you can ski there all year long? Yeah, uh, they close down for a little while for maintenance and stuff. But it's, um, you know, it's all up above tree line on the Palmer Glacier Field. and and of course, it's a popular climbing destination as well to go summit hood, but mm-hmm. you go up through the ski area to do that. Um, so, you know, back in back in the day when I was, you know, in my prime, you know, the big thing was to do a three sport day. So you'd get up in the morning, go ski the morning till it was slushy. You know, this is in June, mm-hmm. July, ski the morning till it was slushy, stop and pop a mountain bike ride on the way down the hill and then windsurf all afternoon. Nice. Um, it's just pretty spectacular area. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, the big draw anymore is, is really tourism based. It's, um, there's just an incredible amount of wineries here that people travel from and it's a good day to get away from Portland. And, um, of course right now that's, you know, been put on a little bit of a damper with the situation, but yeah. it's okay by me. Yeah. Well, it's a, probably a good time to spend some time in the woods, uh, one way or another. Um, <laughs> seems like, you know, for social distancing and for just distancing yourself from the from everything that's going on, but, uh, man, what a recreational, uh, incredible place that you live in three sport day. That's, that's pretty cool. I've always thought that, um, you know, I've always thought that kiting is the perfect complementary sport to fishing in the, in the keys, because there's so many days where it's just too windy to fish or your people don't want to go. And then you can go out and, and do the kites. And a lot of, a lot of the fishing guides are way into that. I, uh, I had, little kids when that was first getting started and just didn't, didn't fit, didn't fit into yeah. the, into the life right then. But, uh, and most of my people were like, came all the way down here. We're going anyway. Okay. All right. Yeah, we're exactly. <laughs> we're going fishing anyway. Um, yeah. 
That's cool. So um, tell me about your company, Burnwin. Well, Burnwin, it's, um, we born and raised here in the Columbia Gorge. Um, in, in some ways for somebody from Florida, it might seem like a strange place for a company like ours to exist. But um, just like our sports availability here, our fishing and boating scene is quite varied. Mm. And um, the other kind of neat thing about this area is that because of the international draw with people who want to locate somewhere for lifestyle, there's an incredible plethora of talent and skill here in the gorge in the Northwest in general. Um, so anyways, Bernawin, um, which by the way is an old Gaelic term for blacksmith or craftsman. Mm. Um, really kind of designed in the, in the conception of our company to connotate just quality, kind of old world quality. With a lot of industries, um, especially in the hardware arena, you know, there was there's kind of been a race to the bottom with a lot of things, whether mm. it's tools or boat hardware or whatever. And um, so we wanted to represent something that was done a little bit more in an old school way, um, having to do with craftsmanship, quality, attention to detail, and so on. So um, that's the history of the name. But the reason we even exist was that um, most people, I mean, they want to be Tom Rowland and, and Rich Tudor every day, right? Or, you know, Scott Walker or somebody every day. But the reality is we all, even my aluminum fishing boat I use here in the, in the Columbia Gorge all the time, we do all kinds of different things on that boat. Right. Not only different types of fishing, but uh, just recreating and hanging out. And it just seemed like in the marine industry, there had been a lot of real great innovation in terms of boats, uh, boat propulsion, electronics, and then also the things we use on boats, fishing rods, fishing reels, downrigger, whatever it is, um, even recreational products, cruising products. And what we found was that in a lot of cases, people would design these really great products. And then the last thing they do is just figure out a way to mount it on a boat, right? <laughs> yeah. And a lot of times those mounting systems were kind of an afterthought. They're already behind. You had to just get something to get it on the boat. And so Bernoin really arose strictly from the need to create a nice, well-designed system that allowed people to reconnect different things to their boat, depending on what they were doing for the day. Now, the fact is we're primarily fishermen. Um, but, you know, here we might be oversized sturgeon fishing one day, salmon fishing the next day bass fishing the next day. And if you live near the coast, you're, you're going to be out running for tuna, you know, in the su late summer tuna season, I'll maybe throw in some crab pots or whatever. Right. So, um, that's kind of why we even exist. Um, but of course we could talk forever about our products and what we do, but that's the concept of why we're here. Yeah. Well, what was the, like, what you have is pretty cool. Like it's a, I mean, if you don't know about this company or this product, it's, basically something old kind of reinvented. The old part is a rod holder. Like everybody's got rod holders on the boat and they're basically just a hole in the boat with a, with a tube in it and you stick the rod in there and it pretty much holds it. But yours has, it's got a different design that allows for multiple accessories to be put on top of it very securely. Right. Is that yeah. fair? enough that's absolutely fair yep. yeah so what was the first thing that that you designed this type of rod holder to hold well so we're really careful not to call our mounts a rod holder they're mounts really they're a universal marine mount 
And um, what we did was we didn't just piecemeal it. So we spent three years developing an entire product line because if we're going to have somebody put one of our mounts in their boat, we wanted them to be able to actually have it be a versatile thing, right? Yeah. So a series of rod holders, um, adopters, so people could do things like downriggers. Honestly, in the Northwest, where people do use downriggers quite a bit, that's one of the most common entry points into our mounting system is you just don't want to take that downrigger plate and screw it to your boat permanently. Right. Yeah, of course. Myself, I don't really love downriggers, but occasionally you need them. And actually, we're seeing a lot more uh, business out of Florida for people who do use them for trolling Wahoo, for example. and, you know, what we were finding was that you throw a downrigger in a gimbal mount, a traditional 30-degree rod holder, and you're breaking the gimbal pins at the bottom. I mean, I know so many people, myself included, you know, before we existed, that have a bolt in there because they broke the factory pin. Yes. They're sloppy. They're a little loosey-goosey, right? <clears throat> so that's one common application. Um, and then, quite frankly, the other one is if you all of a sudden, you know, you're out on a Saturday you know, we're out albacore tuna fishing hardcore with a bunch of guys on Sunday. You just want to take somebody out for a cruise. You don't want all this fishing gear stuck on your boat all the time, right? Right. So that was really the impetus behind, and, and you kind of hit the nail on the head, really. The 30-degree flush mount rod holder, um, they're just prolific. They're everywhere. Every boat builder puts them in the boat, whether customers want them or not. Um, and you can go back years in the marine industry and find companies um, that have done surveys of their customers. Um, a lot of them don't even use them. Hmm. And in certain fisheries, you never use 30 degree rod holders. The, the rod's sticking straight up in the air. And, you know, 30 degree rod holders are the whole reason bent butt rods even exist because you need to get the rod in a position that it can work uh, right. for you. You know, the rod is there to take up slack, right? Keep that line tight. And if the rod's sticking straight up in the air and you're fishing down at all, that's just not the right position. So they created bent butts to get the rod a little more horizontal to the water. So all of our rod holders that work in our mounts do that. They articulate horizontally a full 360 degrees and then vertically quickly with a trigger to go from horizontal to the water to a full vertical in some cases, and at least 45 in others, like the ones you've used. Yeah. Yeah. No, they're great like that because like you say, not everybody's got bent butt rods. I mean, we, uh, Rich and I mostly are inshore fishermen that occasionally mm-hmm. go out and deep drop and swordfish and, and uh, you know, he's really gotten into, into the deep dropping for the, for the uh, barrel fish and the queen snappers and all the other tile fish and everything else that we can find out there. But that really sometimes requires like a whole new line of rods, like all the bit right. butts and everything like that, where it's not that the rods that we currently have aren't, heavy enough. Like we, we have plenty of rods that are heavy enough, but they don't have the bent butt. So that's where we were starting to use your rod holder and get that, get that rod away from the boat and out in a, in a horizontal position. And that has worked right. great. Yeah. That seemed to be what, you know, I went out on the boat one day with uh, rich and, uh, we were, I guess, as you call it, there refishing, which is something I'd done way in the past down there in the keys. when I used to spend quite a bit of time there it's really no different than the way we fish halibut off the Oregon coast. Um, we pick a key spot. Um, we set up a drift. We want to get just the right drift speed. So you're covering some ground, but not too fast. So you can keep your bait on the bottom. And when you're doing that, whether you're 200 feet deep, like we were that day out of Isla Morada or 800 feet deep off the Oregon coast, uh, 
same technique. And it's really important that the rod be horizontal to the water. And, um, you know, some people look at us, some of our high end stainless products as big boat, you know, Viking boat class products, but, um, you know, on that 26 foot boat, we fished that day down there, it really allowed us to get a nice big spread. So we're able to get, you know, we were using long leaders, I think like 20 foot leaders that day with um, live bait fish, Yep. maybe an eight ounce lead or something, just tapping bottom. Yep. And just with the rock of the water, we could get it set just like we do for halibut here so that the rod tips every now and then would indicate, you know, that you were touching bottom a little here and there um, and getting a good spread out. Um, so the factory 30 degree rod holders that go in the back of the gunnels typically are pointing straight back and then the rods are sticking up. And then as you drift, your lines are tangling in the outboards and it's just not the right. Yeah, setup. it's certainly not the right setup for that. I mean, it's pretty good for, you know, the trolling for dolphin and stuff like that. That that seems to work right. fine. But uh, in yep. this situation, what I liked about it is we could use the utilize the, the rod holders in the front and then we could really get spread out. Um, and have, mm-hmm. have one of the bow mount rod holders in the same position. Like, so we right. got two rods out and that worked great. Um, I'm interested with the, the halibut fishing because when I was a kid, I always liked flounder fishing. I thought flounders were really a cool fish and they were, they were mm-hmm. very, um, they were way more aggressive than I thought they would be when I was first learning about flounders. I thought, you know, these mm-hmm. things are just like bottom dwellers. And so the halibut is basically the same fish with that grows to really big sizes um there are they like super aggressive like that i've never fished for them you know it's interesting so we don't catch like what a lot of people think of um halibut they're thinking of you know the big alaskan barn door yeah. right you know, the big hundred some pounder um they take a lot of hard cranking to bring up because they have so much surface area sure. right there's this big big broad kite and what they'll do is go nose down and just sit there and just work against you they're not big runners per se um but they're really hard crankers um i wouldn't say that they're exciting fish to fight um the bite's kind of neat the bite can be this really soft bite we have to be really sensitive not to disrupt it but then once that goes it's sort of game on right but it's more of a heavy grind than it is uh an exciting bite, you know, and not really. Rough. You guys are fishing those in 800 feet of water, like roughly. It, it it depends, yeah. So they have the openings here are weird, of course, but they have you know three day openings every so often until the Pacific fishery quotas are met. And um, some years that closes quicker than others. That's the sort of all depth season. So we'll be out in you know five to 850 feet of water. Um, and then typically throughout the summer, you can do the 40 fathom fishery, which is 40 fathoms deep or, or less near, it's all near shore. And in mm-hmm. those cases, we might be fishing at a hundred feet, 150, mm-hmm. something like that. And you say that your fish are not the, the size, like the, the Alaskan ones. What, what's a good one in your area? <clears throat> you know, um, so opening day this year, we were out and, um, you could just keep one each day per person. We had six guys in the boat. We each limited out. We actually released a number until we got ones we were happy with, which ranged from 38 to 46 inches about. Okay. Those are going to be in the mid 30 pound, you know, 30, 40 pounds. Yeah. That's a lot of meat. I mean, it's a lot fish, of meat. Yeah. Those fish are mostly meat. Like, you know, some fish are not like some fish, you know, you get way more meat off some fish than others. And it seems like certainly the flounder, it's mostly yeah. meat. That's, that's a, that's a, 
good fish to eat. I love those things, man. But they're, they seem to be aggressive because they're, they're like not that good at catching stuff, I guess. So when something comes over, they've got to get right. it right now or it's gone. Like it's not like, right. not like a tarpon or a, or a wahoo or something that's going to be able to chase anything down. It's like almost like, or like a, like a largemouth bass that sits kind of and waits in ambush and then all of a sudden just has got to get it. And, um, absolutely. So that yeah. results in usually a pretty good bite with, um, yep. with the flounder, but, um, those halibut, man, those things, that has got to be one of the best tasting fish ever. I don't know if it's, oh, it's just, fantastic. Yeah. You know, um, they call it the non fish eaters fish <laughs> and there's, there's really so many ways you can prepare it. And, and, uh, most people, you know, I know fishermen who I, I always hate to hear they, they love fishing, but they hate eating fish. And I'm like, well, really? Yeah. You know, there's, uh, there's salmon fisher people that I know of that they just fish all season because they like catching them. And it's cool because they'll get them to their friends and stuff, but I love them all. Yeah. But the fact is there's very few people who don't like halibut. It's kind of right. like walleye, right? Walleye. And, and like in the keys, I would say that would be the yellowtail snapper or the hog snapper. Um, very mm -hmm. light white meat with that you can basically you can make it taste like whatever it is you're cooking it with whether it, that might be butter <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it tastes yeah. like butter because you cooked yeah. it in a lot of butter but the same kind of deal like in the keys man if you if you're uh talking to somebody and they say they don't like eating fish uh, the fishermen there are almost like that's like almost like a uh a challenge like you don't like eating mm -hmm. fish because you've never had good fish. I mean, mostly what people get in the, in the store has been sitting there for a little bit. It took a couple of days for it to get to the store. It's not perfectly fresh. You get something mm -hmm. that was swimming two hours ago, or it was swimming two hours ago, and then you clean it and put it in the refrigerator and then eat it tomorrow. That's my favorite way to do it. Um, yeah. man, that's, that's good. And you can make Absolutely. a lot of fish taste really good, but that halibut, that's, that's gotta be, um, got to be one of my favorite fish ever when i went to alaska i think i got that everywhere it was served after the first yeah. time i was just like yeah i'll have the halibut again <laughs> yeah i love it too your lingcod is probably a close second to that in terms of coastal fish yeah lingcod yeah. you know there's a lot of a lot of fish like they call the cobia a ling like there and and there's other fish that are called ling i don't know where that where that came from why they would call i don't either that. that's a good question yeah, they're pretty radical fish, though. I love ling lingcotomy. How do you fish for those? Uh, same. It's pretty much so. What we do for lingcot is closer shore, um, whether it's up off of Vancouver Island or the Oregon coast or whatever. Um, and you're bottom fishing with jigs and big rubber tails, typically. Oh, so nice. you're literally jig fishing on rock piles, or like if you're near shore, you watch the big uh, Pacific. You know, the mountain spines that come out. Yeah. You know, on the Oregon coast, you've probably seen them before. There's like Cannon Beach, which has the big haystack rock out in the ocean and Pacific City, where the whole dory fishery fleet is. Yeah. Um, so you just watch those. And typically out in the ocean, there's there's more of those that continue into the ocean, right? And so you fish those pinnacles. And oh, that's spots. cool. And and you're doing that with, with a medium, uh, kind of medium heavy rod. Like how big are these fish that you're catching? Oh, you're happy if you get a 36 inch ling cod. A 36 is inch is like 15 pounds or 12 pounds or something. Oh no, it's probably it's I'd say 15, 18 pounds. Okay, maybe. and mm -hmm. and that's like with a with a big bass rod, like a like a a grouper rod or something. Yeah, yeah, pretty much like a medium reel. heavy. 
it has to have a pretty typically conventional reel because you're constantly adjusting. It's a real jagged bottom. Yeah. If you're out with people who haven't done it much, you're just constantly getting hooked on the hooked up. That's fun. Um, <laughs> and it's a, yeah, it's a real, um, it, unfortunately the guy that's piloting the boat typically isn't going to be fishing because it's just constant trying to keep the drift right. And you're typically going over these spires and humps. So as you're going on the up rising side, you know, you got a real potential for snagging. You got to be on the bottom. They kind of live in the little hmm. holes and kind of like what I remember about, you know, Barracuda in Florida. It's like they live in these little holes and things go by. Right. Hmm. But we're typically using a 12. I personally like a, like a 16 ounce lead jig head with a giant hook and about a eight to 10 inch, you know, rubber tail. Really? And those yeah. are as good to eat as halibut? They're, I think they're, I'd say a very close second. Really? Wow. That's cool. Mm -hmm. I like the, I like the method and, and the result of eating, eating something like that. That sounds, that sounds cool. It's super fun. And then you get a bunch of, it's the same, same spots typically that you're fishing for um, other rock fish like sea bass, black sea bass. So usually on our jigs, um, above the jig head, we'll tie a couple of shrimp flies, Oh, you know, on some, uh, dropper loops yeah. and you'll double up or triple up on sea bass sometimes. And then you'll get a big ling on the bottom one. The ling will usually hit that big bottom jig, but the sea bass will hit those uh, shrimp flies too. So that sea bass is another really good eating fish. That's like, you're, you're going to have a good day if you go out and you catch all three of those. Absolutely. Especially if you drop your crab pots outside the jetty on the way oh, out. Oh, nice. Even yeah. more. It's like a bounty. Yeah. <laughs> you have a feast when you get home. That's super yeah, that's cool. Pretty neat. We almost always drop some crab pots when we go across the bar through the jetties. And, um, it's usually your saver. So if you have a bad fishing day, you come in and pull up a couple pots full of crab. And, and so what kind know. of crab is that? Uh, it's Dungeness crab. Okay. Right. And, and what's mm -hmm. the, like in Florida, each person can have uh, six stone crab traps. You don't have to be a, a commercial fisherman to have that. So like oh, wow. a little family can have, you know, I mean, my wife could have uh, six. My kid could have yep. six. I could have six. You, you know, that's 18. That's plenty you know, to, wow. to give us stone crabs. What's the regulation out there? Uh, two pots per person. Okay. Um, but it's a 15, it's a 15 crab limit each day per person. So, I mean, if two guys <clears throat> go out, we typically tuna fish out of a 23 foot center console just cause it's really efficient to get out there. And sometimes we'll just drop two crab, crab pots, but they're big commercial style ones. Oh yeah. But if you get, I mean, if two guys bring in 30 Dungeness, the Dungeness are big, the limits, they got to be six inches across the back. So uh, it's a lot of crab meat. Yeah. You don't eat the bodies, do you? Or do you? Uh, well, not the shell, of course, but right. yeah, the body, the legs and the body are, the body is some of the best part to me. It's right. a little more work. Well, when you go to Red Lobster, part. when you go to Red Lobster, you only get the legs of the yeah, Dungeness exactly. crabs. They never, they keep the, they keep the body meat for themselves. Probably. Yeah. That's what the fish. Yeah, exactly. Do. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so, um, with the, with the crab traps is what's the season? You know, it, it depends on where you're at. Like the Puget Sound is its own whole deal. There's a lot of summer crabbing there The the prime season for the commercial guys, when the crab are the best, so they're the biggest and they have nice full shells after they've molted. Um, so the commercial season on the Oregon coast is they say any month with an R in it, hmm. right? So, but usually the, the peak is right in the winter, December, January, February. So all the schools around here, like, you know, our local school up on the mountain has a fundraiser every year, uh, crab feed. So it's, we live kind of remote up on the mountain and, um, 
the school run over on a Sunday and pick up all the crab. They pre-sell all the tickets. And we have a big crab feed up on the mountain. On It's always in like the third week of January. That's the peak. Nice. Uh, they just cook them up are, right there outdoors and, and everybody comes by. Yeah. Yeah, well, that actually, they, they cook them at the at the crabbery for us. Yeah. We've got them both ways. It's easier for them to cook them, and then we bring them out. And if people want them hot, they just throw them in a hot water boil. Most people eat them cold. Yeah. Um, but it's fantastic. And we, though, we crab all summer while we're tuna fishing. So our tuna season usually runs mid-July through late September. And um, we'll always drop pots on the way out. And the tuna that you're catching, is that yellowfin? Nope, it's all it's albacore. Albacore, right yep. on. And um, yep. that's that's cool. How big do those get where you are? You know, it's really interesting. We I'm trying to learn more about them. You know, there's worldwide. I think it's one of the one of the few fisheries a lot of people agree is currently sustainable. Mm. And um, my personal understanding and belief is that so they we don't catch them big here. If we catch twenty five to thirty pounders, we're really excited but you catch a lot of them when you get into them, which is the exciting part of it. And um, I personally think the reason is that for whatever reason, when they're in the Pacific up the Northern Pacific here, um, we're really just catching juvenile fish. And I think that could be part of the reason it's somewhat sustainable is you're not catching, you know, breeding stock essentially. Um, I know albacore can get big. It's just that we never see them big here. Yeah. So are there, are, does anyone, fish for them commercially? Uh, yeah. Oh yeah. And so There's, what's the method, uh, that is allowed to fish albacore commercially? Um, they'll do different methods, but most of them put out a big troll spread. And when they hit on the troll, mm -hmm. they'll stop the troll, chum the water and live bait fish with what they call jack poles. Oh yeah. Uh, they also, they also hand line them. So they'll have you know a bunch of hand lines out on girdies, not really girdies, but spools. And they literally just once they get a school to the boat feeding, there's one guy just constantly chumming. And then these guys run jack poles, which um, I have one here. They're eight foot solid fiberglass sticks. They're like, a, um, you ever heard of Tenkara? Yeah. Japanese Tenkara yeah. fishing? Yeah. Okay, well, a jack pole is nothing more than that. It's a super stout, um, you know, with a long wrapped handle, almost like a, uh, a rail rod they use in Southern California. And it's got a long eight or nine foot, about the same length as the pole leader solid tied to the end with a live bait hook yeah and they literally just take it like this stick it in the water and when a fish hooks they just like this and it's called a jack pole because they jack it into the boat like that and swing it up into the guy that's unhooking them and throwing them in the holds and they just literally just jack them like that <laughs> yeah i've seen the videos man that looks like yeah that would be a great job for a college wrestler or someone in the summer like somebody exactly. that really likes to lift weights and, and do things like that. I mean, but there's definitely a technique to it. It's almost like you, you can see somebody that's really good at it. And if you look at these old videos, you can see lots of people that are really good at it, but you'll see two people standing next to one another and one of them will be slightly better than the other. And it's almost like, it's almost like a pole vault pole to where they wait just a second and let that jack pole get just slightly loaded and then right. when they come back, it unloads and it basically shoots the fish behind them over their shoulder where the guy next to them is not using the same technique and he's trying to muscle them in and they barely clear the rail and they end up behind them. Yeah. But you see that guy that's good at it. And man, it it's like a cartoon. 
It's like, and then I guess you have, um, I've always wondered about this. I've never actually talked to anybody that's done that type of fishing, but it looks like some of them are just shaking that, shaking their, their, what looks like a giant fly. Um, because they're not, there's no bait on it. So what is there like feathers on it? Yep. Okay. They'll use different things. They just kind of shake it and it comes out. So that led me to believe that some of them might be barbless or, or whatever. And then they just go right back in without anybody unhooking them. Like, is there a technique yep. to getting that hook out? Do you use a barbless hook? There's gotta be, I don't, I don't jack pull. I have one. Cause every year we're like, yeah, we're going to jack pull some this year just for fun. Of course, the danger of doing it on a 23 or 25 foot boat <laughs> is you hook your buddy in the back of the head. Right. right. Oh, that um, was fun. <laughs> but, uh, so there's a group called the Ilwaco Tuna Club. It's a really cool scene out in Ilwaco, which is at the mouth of the Columbia. And those guys, um, little digression here, if you don't mind, the tuna scene here is pretty neat. Yeah. Um, there's a Netflix series called Battlefish. Okay. I've seen that promoted. And, um, I haven't seen it yet, though. It's pretty cool. I mean, it's one of these reality shows. They dramatize a little bit, but some guys that I know um, are in the show. And essentially, the show is about the commercial tuna fishery out of Ilwaco, Washington. So Ilwaco, Washington is the nearest town to the Columbia Bar, where the Columbia River exits and goes into the Pacific. It is a, it's a really cool little town, super um, long history of uh, commercial fishing there. And then the U.S. Coast Guard's Extreme Boat Piloting School is right there because the Columbia Bar is one of the roughest ones in the world. Wow. And uh, if you ever want some fun YouTube videos of the Columbia Bar coast guard pilot boats self-riding boats so they take them out in the columbia bar and they'll flip these you know 40 foot rescue boats and the guys they're tethered onto the boat and they just hang on till the boat comes back upright wow and then it's it's coast guards it's pretty cool to watch anyways the um so battlefish is really about what they've got is they feature four or five commercial tuna boats and all of them except for one are your traditional big old you know steel kind of gnarly what you would picture the old commercial fishing boat right and what they do is they'll go out sometimes for up to a week they've got you know refrigerated uh you know quick freeze units below and they can hold tons of fish well a, a group of guys that are were primarily sport fishermen um started doing what they call day boat tuna and so they run a 40-foot dorado that they converted with triple outboards it's got three 300s on it i think and they go just for the day. So they run out, fish tuna, come back in. They have their own little processing house. And then that night, it gets delivered to no- restaurants throughout the Northwest. Mm. And then they also pack and can and, and um, um, dry fish and sell it at local markets around the Northwest. And so this show kind of focuses on the drastic difference between these guys doing the day boat tuna program, the traditional commercial fishermen. And they definitely got kind of shunned quite a bit by the commercial guys because here is these guys you know like they're oh that's rich guys in this fancy speedboat but what they're doing is pretty cool because it's raised awareness of our local um food source the albacore tuna in that season when you go to your local grocery store any canned tuna that's labeled white tuna is albacore uh-huh. um most people even in the northwest had no idea that we have this incredible tuna fishery here right so it's like a lot of other things in the food industry. There's a great movement, you know, with beef and pork and chicken, the whole farm to table thing. Yeah. People buying from local producers. And this particular effort of a group called um, Trayfin Foods is specifically changing awareness of this local food source that we have here in the Northwest. Um, 
So it's really a kind of a neat thing. The show's Ch- changing awareness and making people value it more. Like correct, kind of like uh, farmers market food from the local farms versus commercially produced Walmart right. Walmart food or something. People are valuing it more. And uh, does yeah. that make the price go up? Oh, naturally. You know, yeah. <laughs> it's like when you go to, it's like, um, you know, go to nice restaurants here in the Northwest and most of them serve seasonal local sourced food. Right. And that's typically a little more expensive. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think people are seeing a lot of people see the value in that. So these guys that started going out and doing the day boat tuna was the idea that they were going to kind of beat the market as, as these other boats were going out there and fishing for a week and bringing in week old fish, these guys were going out and doing it in one day and bringing in fresher fish, or was it that they didn't want to go out there for a week? No, it was the former, the, the first thing. They, yeah. You know, I think ultimately they are hoping they could, obviously they can make money doing it, right? Because the world we live in is runs by money. But I think that they're um, original. I'm speaking for them now, I guess. But my understanding is they really wanted to do something different and make um, fresh seafood more available locally to people who live where the food is caught. Um, Because most commercial fisheries probably go to canneries and big processors and stuff like that. Yeah. And so a, a boat like that, how many can they bring in? Good question. Um, I, I don't know. I'll have to ask those guys that. Um, they actually run some burner one on that, that 40 foot Dorado. So I talk to them pretty regularly. Yeah. Um, they use our burner one mounts specifically. They also have some long line permits. So when the long line season hits, they put all their long line hauling gear, which is big hydraulic gear, snaps yeah. into their burner one mounts. They really? long line fish for like black cod. And then they pull that off and go do their tuna fishery. Man, right? that has to be um, a real testimony for the strength. I mean, that sounds like some heavy gear. It is. You should see this stuff. It's pretty amazing. The company in Astoria makes all this long lining gear commercially for the yeah. commercial guys. It's neat stuff. But um, I think that, you know, for them, their, their, their permits are all based on total poundage. So I don't think that their daily take is limited by their permit. Their total season okay. is limited by their poundage. Yeah. Um, their daily take is limited by how much they can handle physically, but also how much they can responsibly cool correctly. Mm-hmm. Um, albacore has to be on ice right. I mean, immediately. And so for us, like in our, our 23 foot center console, my buddy and I fish that boat and recreationally you can keep 25 tuna a day, but, honestly really all we can bring in on that boat that we can ice properly so to take care of the meat is about probably depending on the size 25 fish yeah which honestly two guys bringing in 25 tuna is you know you got to figure out where to get who to give it to so that you can convince your yeah, wife that's to a lot next weekend again i mean 25 25 pound tuna that's that's a lot a whole yeah. lot well we have seasons it varies like two years ago and three years ago um, all up and down the Oregon, Washington coast, everybody was catching nine pound albacore on average. Hmm. It's like all of a sudden one year is just all nine pounders for some reason. Wow. Does that, yeah. when, when something like that happens, did the scientists rush in or who's in charge of who, who would you even go to? What, what agency would be somebody that would know what's going on or put some scientists on that? You know, in the Northwest, probably like other places, it's complex. 
um, the tuna fishery is kind of an international issue. Yeah. Well, and, same on the uh, other side of the, of the United States. I was, I was talking yeah. to some people up in Maine and it was the same thing. It's like, well, Canada wants to do this one thing and then the United States wants to do the other. They can't make a decision. So basically the fish are just getting pounded. Um, yeah. Well, it's kind of the opposite here. Typically they, they, um, default to more conservative minded, conservation minded, um, regulations. And let, let's take salmon, for example. Um, you've got Canada, you've got BC as a, as a province, mm -hmm. you've got Washington, you've got Oregon, you've got the Pacific Fisheries Commission, and then you've got all of the native tribes and then the native council that represents wow. all of them. Okay. And a salmon, like when we fish up the West coast of Vancouver, which we should be there this week, but we couldn't go this year for obvious reasons. This time of year, all the fish we catch up there are Columbia River run salmon. But yet you're fishing Canadian regulations, right? Um, so then you've not only that, but you've got all these different agencies and states. But then you also have um, the sport fishing concerns and you've got the commercial fishing concerns and gill netters. There's still a gill net commercial season on the Columbia River. Uh, the natives, the tribes have tribal fishing rights up and down the Columbia River. So just last week, you know, um, they just closed steelhead on the Columbia, but the last couple of days, all of a sudden, all the native, uh, gill nets were out all up and down the river. Really? So once that happens, you know, it's your, your numbers just drop dramatically. So, and then, you know, fishing here in the Columbia. So we're in, we're about a hundred and some miles up river from the ocean, but those fish like the up river brights, they're going all the way up into Idaho and you know who knows where are these little right. rivers. So really, they're their fish, right? So do they then have a say in how we fish here, which arguably they probably should. It's a very complex equation. Yeah. It sounds like it. The native fishing, when they're using the gill nets like that, what are they doing something commercially with that? Or is that just yeah. for their own use or what do they, what does that look like? Both. So, you know, there's the argument for that season, of course, is, um, is part of it is historical um, subsistence fishing. But most of them that I know um, do it commercially as well. So there's fish processing houses up and down the Columbia that they sell their fish to. And, you know, you can go and buy fish there and then they'll sell it commercially. And, mm. uh, there's a fish processing house just three doors down from us here on the Columbia. Wow. So both. Yeah. That with so many politics um, involved in that and so many, so many different like ingredients, like you've got the dams, then you've got, then you've got different types of fishing um, like the gill nets. And then you, I'm sure plenty of other commercial um, deals. Then you've got all of the, the international politics, the state politics, all of the things that you just you just kind of described quickly what as someone who lives out there, what do you think the, is the future bright for the salmon? Is it difficult to kind of understand what's going on for anyone or like, what's the status? I think it's, um, I don't think it's dismal, but I think that to hope that the future is bright is, is of course, what does bright mean? Bright for, the guy who likes to go out and sport fish for him for two fish for his family yeah. or bright for the, whatever. Um, I do know this, you know, if you really study it, it's a difficult equation that I don't know if 
mankind will ever be able to really balance out because we have created a river now that was this, you know, world-class dynamite, incredibly huge high water flow river that had rapids and everything on it. And now it's a slow moving river that's on average much warmer than it would have been naturally. And some of these fish have to get up river a thousand miles, you know, yeah, up into their tributaries. So, you know, you've got people that are calling for removal of all dams, um, which I guess if you think about it, it first probably be good for the fish actually. Yeah. But I don't know that that's practical. There's so many potential downsides to that. Um, and then, you know, we've got other political forces, like there's a resident, um, herd of orca whales, um, that live in the Puget Sound around the San Juan Islands. And there's tour boats that go watch them and they've got them all named. They've been there for a long time. There's some numbers that show that they're on the decline. The, the theory is that they're short of food and they eat salmon primarily. So those people who are in favor of the orca whales up in the Puget Sound area, which by boat from here is three, 400 miles, are calling for the removal of dams way up the Columbia River because those are typically the fish that they're eating, right? Yeah. But it's so complex that I don't know if any, I don't know if anybody really that was truly objective about it. Um, and, you know, I always try to just back up and look at perspective, forget about the details a little bit. I think it's unreasonable to think that we can actually satisfy every need out there. So then just thinking about the theory of it, do you have to just decide which interests you ignore? Um, there are people who would argue and, and claim maybe rightly that all we got to do is make whatever's right for the salmon and we have to adapt to what, what that is. But then the question is, how do you determine that? Right. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. Uh, is it even so, practical to think that you can, that, I mean, practical is one thing, whatever. Uh, is it at all realistic to think that you could get rid of the dams? I mean, some dams obviously don't have development. Uh, you know, some dams might be a good candidate, but some other ones, I would think that it would be very, very difficult to to do that based upon cities and towns that have been built nearby. Like, oh. I mean, is that is that even a possibility in some, even if it was well, voted I, upon, it could, could you do that? I think logistically it'd be tough. I mean, you look at, so the Bonneville dam was one of the first ones here and that's between Portland and us. And that's the last dam on the Columbia. And the Bonneville dam was built in the thirties, not, I think the thirties somewhere, not too far from the Hoover dam, maybe mm -hmm. later by 10 years or something. And then the Dalles dam, which is the next dam upriver from us about 20 miles was just built in the sixties or something. And so it flooded a lot of native sacred grounds like Celilo Falls was this mm. incredible fall system in the Columbia River. And that whole village got buried, right, oh, by man. the water. Um, so if we just built that dam in the 60s, we certainly could figure out how to take it out, I guess. Right. But the impacts would be, I don't know what they would be. I mean, commercially, you know, there's incredible uh, traffic of barges transporting things up and down the river. Um, I suppose, arguably, all the towns that remain would be way above high water now. So big deal. You lose a lot of ports and like our local timber company here. It's a huge company, family owned. I mean, they have big facilities right on the river, right next to us here that float rafts of logs down the river. as pulp. And so logistically, I think it's challenging. There's been a number of dams that have been removed on the tributaries. Mm -hmm. Just downriver from us here, the White Salmon River, which comes off of Mount Adams. About eight or nine years ago, they removed the Condit Dam, which was this incredible dam in this canyon. And um, it was quite a spectacular thing. You can find the video on YouTube. 
but they basically excavated below it, tunneled a big, maybe 10 foot diameter channel in the bottom of it until they were so thin walled down there that they blasted it. Mm. And it within like five hours drained the whole Northwestern Lake that had been formed in the thirties when it was built. Did it take out the dam as it started going underneath the dam? Did it then take out the dam or just continue to flow underneath it? They then, they then took the dam out. They left the powerhouse down river because it's on the national historic register, but it, it doesn't disrupt the flow of the river. Hmm. But it was a pretty spectacular project. And so when when something like that happens, you know, that you say that's a year ago? That was like eight years ago. Eight years ago. So fast forward to today, what does that look like? Well, you know, the river now free flows from the mountain all the way to the mouth. So now like rafting companies, they all raft the whole river now through that canyon where before it was just a lake, right? Wow. Um, there have, I know a lot of guys that go up there now and steelhead fish above where the dam was. Now there's steelhead that run up there, whether they're breeding up there, I don't know. Um, but there is evidence that there's been a return of the, um, the salmon runs up that river. Wow. Uh, That's super cool. Super that cool. Is cool in a way. Yeah. yeah. Um, but man, what an undertaking to, to do oh. that. And really what happened with that was, you know, the, the, the FERC, I guess it is federal energy regulatory commission. They, they issue permits for dams. So I think it was Pacific power that owned that dam built in the thirties. They have a 99 year lease to have the dam there. And then they have to renew that lease. Well, that lease came up and because of pressure from environmentalists, good or bad, the FERC put a bunch of new regulations on it to say, if you want to keep that dam in place and get it repermitted, one of the things you have to do is put a fish ladder around it. Well, the cost of doing that, I mean, it wouldn't be impossible, but it was in this kind of slot Canyon are so incredibly high. And, you know, the amount of power they got out of that thing probably wasn't very significant. Mm-hmm. So it was really, a, it came down to, they forced a financial decision to remove it. Right. Right. That's the most, that's where the most effective uh, decisions usually come down to. I mean, when we look at the, at the, at the water issues in Florida, if, if it can come down to a financial decision to, to make a good decision for the environment, if it is also a good decision for the wallet, sure is a lot easier to get it to push through. Like, Absolutely. I mean, yeah. when it makes sense, that's what the guys from like Captains for Clean Water, they've done a really good job of that is like every time that there's an issue, they, they, it's not just fishermen fighting for this, this issue or whatever. They bring in everybody, restaurant owners, um, you know, uh, real estate agents, all kinds of people that either live or die by the health of the water, whether they know it or not. And then explain it to them. Like, look, if the beaches are ugly and dirty, nobody's coming. And if nobody comes, then the house that you're trying to sell is worth half of what it was worth. Oh yeah. This is a really important issue. (laughs) You know, but I mean, sometimes that's what it takes to, to get people to understand what's going on. It sounds like the same kind of thing out there. Do those fish ladders, do they work? I mean, obviously they do. Um, yeah, yeah, it's pretty cool. You can go to the Bonneville Dam, and um, like anytime anybody visits, I take them over there, and you can go down inside the the spillway of the dam, and they've got like it's like set up like a theater, theater seats and everything, and the oh, whole wall is glass, cool. and you watch the salmon swim by going up the fish ladder. It's just like a series of it's like all these chicanes, right? Yeah, and um, and then they have a room, so you can go online anytime you want and look up what are called the seven day fish counts, and you can see every day. So that's what we use as fishermen to gauge the fish runs so you can pull it up on the website it'll list every dam that they do that up the columbia 
all the species of fish and how many went through that day. And it can look at the history. So how right are they now counting we got that? Is that an automated system or is someone sitting there counting those fish? No, there's people that sit there. <laughs> That's what I thought. They have, yeah, they have, it's like an aircraft control center room. They sit in there and they have windows. The fish have to swim by and they sit there and have tickers and they just, they get, you know, they're really educated on identifying the fish by the shapes. Sure. They just tick them off. And it's incredible because right now we have uh, the American shad running going, which are non-native. But just last week, we were up to 500,000 shad a day coming through the Bonneville Dam. Wow. Wow. How big do your shad get? Uh, they'll be like, we do this time of year, we go fish for them, some just for fun. But uh, we we use them a lot for sturgeon bait and crab uh -huh. bait. Yeah. And because uh, they're really, they're the largest herring species is what they are. There's a herring. Mm -hmm. They're a herring. But you can bank fish for them below the dams, just like a little tiny shad dart. You pitch out with a piece of pencil lead and drift fish, just like drift fishing for salmon or steelhead. Yeah. And uh, you can catch 50, 60 of them in an hour and a half. Wow. And they're typically like three to six pounds, probably. Yeah. We have shad on the East Coast as well, and um, they can be really good fighters. They jump like a little tarpon. And uh, like you say, you can catch a ton of them. Um, yeah. That was my introduction when I was a kid. That was my introduction to a trash fish. And I went fishing with my grandfather, who was all about the largemouth bass. He just thought the largemouth bass was everything, and he wanted to be a professional fisherman, even though he wasn't all that good. Um, that's he was a jeweler by trade, and he wanted to uh. be a professional bass fisherman. He he definitely did better to stay in the jewelry business than in the bass fishing business. But anyway, I went fishing with him, and I catch this awesome fish it was the best fish we caught all day it jumped it ran my i'd never had heard my drag pull like that he yeah. did it in he's like ah it's an old shad throw it up on the bank and i was like <laughs> why this thing is the coolest fish ever like it none of yeah. none of the other fish did this and um now i understand it's non-native and all that but but that was my introduction to trash fish like and yeah. and so many people um call all different kinds of fish, trash fish, Jack Crevels, barracudas, all, all kinds of sharks, things like that yeah. are, are trash fish, but man, they are day makers more often than not. Like you go oh, out absolutely. there, not every day do you go out there and catch a bunch of bonefish, but you can stop by the Jack Crevel spot and catch, you know, five or six of those. And somebody goes home super happy. Um, Oh, same thing with a nurse shark. Like most people come to the Keys, they've never even seen a shark before. They catch a nurse shark and, you know, you can either play it up for them and be like, hey, cool, look at that. And things like eight feet long. That's a huge shark. Or you can be like, ah, the nurse shark, you know. But I mean, yeah. and, and that reaction right there is the difference between them feeling like, wow, I caught this shark. Right. Or yeah. I guess I caught a nurse shark, you know, like almost embarrassed about <laughs> it, you know. but. <laughs> You know, it's interesting. I think that's where guides, like I've had some experiences with guides down in the Keys um, of all different sorts. And I think that's where it's important that they um, gauge their customer's experience and interest. Right. Because in a way, oftentimes they may be taking somebody out who really doesn't, they just want to be on the water and catch some fish. So in that case, they should just say, wow, that is really awesome. Was that fun? Yes. Yes, yeah. it was. And whatever. And we're going to throw them back He's no good eating, but we're going to throw him back. Yeah. Take some pictures. Like and let the, him you know, the customer's always right. Like right. if they are happy and having a good time, awesome. Let's do yeah. it. But I think a lot yeah, of people are, they, they don't want to go back to the dock and say, well, we caught three nurse sharks and, uh, right. and not look so good to their yeah, nobody, guide buddies. Nobody in the keys, 
no guides in the Keys want to be known as the nurse shark guide, right? No, but you know, if you got a small family and you just got a $500 tip because you caught three nurse sharks and you made it sound like they were pretty cool. Right. You know, I mean, it's all about your priorities. (laughs) Hey, um, so speaking of captains for clean water, I just recently watched a, I don't remember what show it was, but it was a show they were talking about, um, the whole Everglades system. Yeah. I know that that's its own whole subject, but I'm just kind of fascinated by it. I spent a bit of time in Southwest Florida. And then um, years ago, I used to spend two weeks every winter in the Keys, camping at Bahia Honda back in the 80s, nice. fishing and diving and stuff, you know. And uh, I was always fascinated by the Everglades, but I never really realized how big of an issue that really is. And I understand um, in this show I watched, there's an issue with the sort of natural flow of fresh water towards the south into the Everglades that spills out into the saltwater. Yep. Um, that's something I'm interested in learning well, more about. kind of. There. Like the, the captains for clean water guys really helped me to fully understand the, the situation, or I don't know if I fully understand it, but I understand it a lot better. And it's interesting that if you're a guide or an angler or someone that lives at the mouth of the Caloosahatchee River, you know where, where I'm mm-hmm. talking about on the west coast yep. of Florida, or yeah. um, on the other coast where you have – uh, Okeechobee is is sending water out both sides of the state, right? Yep. And if you're a person that lives there and you never go to the Everglades, then there's one problem with the Everglades and Okeechobee is that effluent and um, fertilizer and all kinds of stuff is exiting out, going out of Okeechobee and they're pushing it out the Caloosahatchee river and out the other side and it's creating algae blooms and all kinds of things where you get, you get this water that shouldn't be going out. First of all, it's way too much fresh water. It's never designed to be that much. And then you have uh, in some cases, a lot of other things that will create algae blooms and accentuate red tide and all kinds of other problems. Right. So if you're if you live in those areas, that's the problem. Well, if you live in the Florida Keys, those problems are not really in your world. Like they're just right. not part of what you see on a daily basis. Occasionally you'll get kind of an algae bloom and it might be some of that water coming down, moving south, but the big problem for the people that like to fish the Flamingo area and, you know, in the Florida Keys is that Okeechobee used to have uh well, it used to be called the river of grass. Like the, it was a yep. laminar flow, very shallow that flowed across almost the entire state of Florida South and water would bubble up. Water would be channeled through things and it would move South and it would go into the Everglades area that if you come down and fish with us, that's the area we're going to take you to Flamingo, all of this Cape Sable area right there. And, and that area should be getting a, a, a constant flow of fresh water, but because of roads, dikes, dams, um, many different other kind of projects that I don't even know what they are, that water has stopped. Ha, the 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 water has not been allowed to flow south, almost completely right. shut down. So what happens is, if you just like if you've ever had a saltwater aquarium, if you put saltwater in that aquarium. And everything's beautiful and you have your tropical fish swimming around. And then you let that go for a month, two months, evaporation happens. The water continues to get saltier and saltier and saltier and saltier as the freshwater is evaporated out until 
the coral inside of your fish tank dies, until the fish die, until everything dies. And so there's really two problems with the Everglades. One, when it rains too much and you have too much water, they have to send the water out the side. Okay. Then at the same time, the water is not flowing south as it's supposed right. to. So there's two unnatural flows. One, a dip- disruption of flow. And second, a way increased flow going out both sides. And to my f- friends at Captains for Clean Water, I hope I've explained that correctly. Um, <laughs> because it is, you know, it is a, 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 I'll almost use the word funny, but it is kind of a, a, a weird situation that people that are very close to it and you would think that everybody that's associated with fishing would understand what the problem is in the Everglades. But that's not necessarily true because the problem is the problem that you see. What is making right. your beach dirty? Why are these dead fish washing up on your beach? And then you right. focus on that problem and you don't realize that, yes, there's too much freshwater here, but there's no freshwater here. And it's creating incredible salinity, which is killing the yeah. turtle grass and killing fish and killing all kinds of stuff going south. So you have to do a couple of things. You have to create like what they're talking about. And, and the, the solution to this has already been um, voted on and the money's there and it's all good to go. They just have to actually do it. And there are these big retention, retention ponds where they can, they can create this, these areas where they can settle that water and then send it south more gradually. And they've already been removing some bridges and dams and all kinds of things to get more water moving south. Mm. So there is progress. And um, one of the things that I think has been the the best, at least for my understanding of it, is that the Captains for Clean Water guys were the first people for me to explain to me that there is a solution. And if and, and not only is there a solution, but it's already been it's already been decided on. There's a plan. It's already been out yeah. there. And all we have to do is, to is implement it. Right. And yep. uh, in order to implement it, what really needs to happen is people need to understand what these problems are and understand that there is a solution and then ask the representative to fight for them. Like water is important and we want the Everglades to be better than it has ever been. And, you know, when, when, when I talk to those guys, I can see that, yes, there is a path to where the Everglades in our lifetime could be better than it's ever been in our lifetime. And we can leave it better for our grandchildren than we ever saw it. And there, mm-hmm. it, it, it's, it's there. I mean, there's plenty of water. It falls out of the sky every day. So yeah. where does that water go? And, and how is it channeled? And does it have a lot of fertilizer and other things in it? Those are the, those are the things that, you know, that's kind of the the issue, but I mean, there's a lot of issues, but it it is, at least to me, it is, it is relieving to understand that a lot of smart people have spent their entire life creating this plan and it, it can be done. I mean, it, it can be done. It comes back to the, the money thing you mentioned though, too, right? Somehow you've got to figure out how to pay for that. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, the money's supposed to be there. That's yeah. uh, when it comes time to, to, to do it. We'll see if it's there. Well, I think we should go see that uh, stuff you were talking about from the keys next time I'm down there. Yeah. Well, that's easy. Yeah. We go, we go straight North uh, out of Hawks K. You, you can run straight across to Flamingo. You can do it from Isla Mirada. I used to even run over there from Key West and um, that's, you don't want to do that. That's too far, but we'll, we'll yeah. do it from marathon or from, uh, or from Hawks K. It's not a bad run at all. 
but yeah, I'd love yeah, to cool. love to show you that. And, um, and then you can see, you know, the Everglades is a beautiful spot and given a chance, probably just like your river out there where they took the, took the dam away. And now people are up there fishing and probably the, the deer and all the, all the land animals are probably coming back and the vegetation's probably coming back. I mean, eight years, I'm sure it is. And then, uh, all you got to do is give it a chance. And that's the same yeah. thing with the, with the Everglades, man. If you get some fresh water in there and you give, let nature kind of do its thing, you won't believe how fast it'll come back. That's my, that's my opinion anyway. Well, I agree. I think, you know, in some ways we see evidence of that out here. Um, I always say this, you know, if we just, if we just gave up tomorrow, you know, trying to manage everything, mother nature would reclaim pretty quickly in, in her time frame, Right. Yeah. I think we humans, we always think in terms of our lifespan. So let's say we live on average 80 years or whatever. That seems like a lifetime, but that's just a blip really in time. Yeah. You, know, you go hiking around here and find some of the old highways that cut through the gorge or up in the mountains. And we may have abandoned those and stopped maintaining them 20 years ago. And they're just decimated and overgrown and the concrete's broken up. And that 20 years is just a blip of time. Oh, yeah. Mother nature time. It's a, it's a complete blip in time. And and then, um, you know, all, all of that is, is going to be something to be looked at in a year from now, like 2020 has been a really strange year and it's been a really strange year in, uh, outdoor recreation because, you know, national parks have been closed in a lot of places we've got, uh, in, in a lot of places, there's been less than average, uh, boat traffic. I mean, and substantially less. So Mm -hmm. what is this going to mean this time next year? Are we going to see a, a, a giant, um, boom in, in some fisheries? Like I wouldn't doubt it. You know, there's been a lot of places where, where there's been virtually no pressure for the first time in 40 years, 50 years, you know, Mm -hmm. and, and there's nobody there. And it's at a time usually when the fishing's really good. And I don't know, I think that's going to be interesting too. Like it, it, when this thing first started, I started talking to one of my friends, uh, Robert Trossett, and he was saying, you know, this whole thing is just like a, a reset for mother nature. And I was like, that's, that's a good way to look at it. Like you take, you take the pressure off and see what happens. Yeah. You know, and yeah. he, he was that's saying an interesting that, perspective. I don't totally disagree with that either. Have you seen um, that the, uh, that the pressure like on the salmon fishing during the COVID lockdown and everything was like people weren't going or weren't able to go or the marinas were closed or, or. Yeah, there was actually quite a bit of that. You know, like we keep our boat, we fish the coast over at the coast and uh, we had it. We act, in fact, we still have it back here right now refitting some electronics and uh actually during the first part of the halibut season a couple things oregon wasn't letting non-residents fish in oregon so we live right on the border so i fish both and then also most of the marinas on the coast their boat ramps were just completely closed i mean they had them concrete uh, utility blocked off Mm. and kind of what happened was right after washington oregon put the statewide shutdown mandates on that next weekend all these little coastal towns were just absolutely flooded with people. <laughs> and, you know, all the coastal towns here in the Pacific are real small towns, right? There's no big towns on the coast and um, their villages essentially. And uh, they were inundated with people. And so the mentality there was, of course, well, shoot, if we can't go anywhere, why should all these people come out and be cluttering up our town? Right. Weekend if there's concerns. Yes. Whether people believed in the concerns or not, or what level they believed in them. And I totally got it. Right. It's like all of a sudden uh, highway 101 through these little coastal towns was 
bumper to bumper cars, right? So in some ways that was a bummer for us because we were trying to get our boat back out to our slip. Um, but for the most part, I think people have been responsible about it. And, you know, I, we find when we go fish, we go out, hop on the boat early morning, fish all day, come home tired and hang out with the same guys we fished with pretty much. And yeah. We'll see how it plays out later this summer. We're kind of itching though, cause tuna are on their way and you know, that's within a month now of our season. So we'll see. Well, the fish, the fish are, uh, they're going to be out there. And if there's less yeah. pressure, I think it's going to be pretty good. I think that the yeah, pressure no, that's, is... that's a good thing, for you know, sure. If you relieve the pressure, then then the fish yeah. are going to respond. But anyway, man, I enjoyed it, Tom. This has been great. Uh, how would people find your your company, your products? How can they follow you on social media? Um, it's pretty easy. So our company name is Burnawin. It's kind of a strange one to pronounce and spell. It's B-U-R-N, just like burn. And then E-W-I-I-N, burnawin.com. And um, same name for Instagram, Facebook. We don't do a ton of social media, but we do try to do some pretty nice Instagram stuff, just making people aware of the range of boaters and boats and applications that we appeal to. And, um, you know, we're pretty new down in the Southeast, uh, really brand new. I mean, you know, working with you and Rich and discovering some of the advantages just for some particular fishing applications down mm -hmm. there has been great for us, but we'd also like to, you know, work as much as we can down there to make people aware of uh, sort of the broad range of applications that we offer, not just for fishing. Um, and then personally, I'm kind of on a bent to get my cousin in Naples or on Marco Island to get a, get his flats boat going. And <laughs> we're going to experiment with some products on some flats boat setups too. So if any of your listeners have a flats boat they want to experiment with uh we would be looking for somebody to partner up with seeing what we can do there yeah well one of the one of the best uh things i've seen is the way that you can put a fillet table there because usually the fillet tables that i've had that go on a rod holder are mm, not not the not the most rigid piece of equipment yeah. um yep. and uh and you never want to be cutting on your on your really expensive boat so um, yeah. that's, that's a good one. The way that you, that is a good you application, you know, for certain fisheries, um, you know, here, of course, we bait fish a lot for salmon. Um, and it's great to have a bait prep station and we'll run one on a transom. So we have a rigging station and then it comes with a couple of our mounts in the upper corners. So you can get a couple of flat lines out the back that get up and over your outboards and you can articulate them really well for trolling, but also just for a bait prep station. And then honestly, we have a lot of people who use them, um, you know, that aren't just strict fishing boats, they'll have their cocktail spread out on that. Of evening. course they will. Barbecue up in the upper corner and, you know, our knives all integrate with our mounts. Yeah, so that's it's, super uh, cool. it's a pretty slick setup. Yeah. yeah. And um, so it's for us, you know, we sell primarily through boat dealers. We don't really have a dealership network uh, too broadly in Florida yet. We're working with a couple of key new dealers down there. I'll be down um, setting up a uh, Grady White Fisherman later this summer for one of our dealers up in the Great Lakes who has a place in Island Marotta and they keep a boat down there. So we're going to get that all decked out. And of course, you know, you and Rich have experienced it on your 26 foot yellow fin. Um, but yeah. yeah, so check us out. And uh, we're really uh, keen on customer service. We love talking to customers. Everybody hates it because when I get with customers, I end up talking forever about fishing and boats and I like learning from them, right? Yeah. So. Don't hesitate to contact us. You'll probably get to me. Okay. There you go. You can yeah. tell a fish story. <laughs> yeah. And then uh, also 
you should definitely, I know you have some history in Montana. Yeah. Um, you should definitely try to get out here and depending on the season, um, we can fish tuna, Dungeness, oversized sturgeons, fun right out in front of our warehouse here. We can drop for oversized sturgeon and what's a, what's an oversized sturgeon? Uh, oversized meaning they're above the slot limit. What's, for keeping. What is the slot? The slots, I think 38 to 52 inches. Oh, okay. Yeah. So I don't want to, I don't want to keep one. I, I would love one day and I'll, I only need to catch one of these, but I would like to catch one yeah. of those really big sturgeon. That would oh, be they're incredible. Awesome. Yeah. We anchor up in about 125 feet of water and then we send a whole shad to the bottom on a 48 ounce lead yeah. on a slider Yes, and sit and wait and uh, hook up. And then when, when they hook up, um, you know, we drop the anchor. So we use anchor balls so you can release the anchor off the boat and drift with the fish. Yes. But um, it's not uncommon at all right out in front of our warehouse here to catch 10 to 11 footers. Really? And like, yeah. would you expect like a good day is to, hook one or do you hook multiples or what, what multiples. is it? A, a good day <clears throat> this time of year is kind of the best time for it. Cause the shad are running and they love that food source. But, um, so if we go out, we'll typically go in the morning. It's nice because it's between our prime salmon season. So there's not a lot else going on other than bass, which is really fun here. Smallmouth. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. Um, really? We'll, love we'll small mouth. And, oh, it's crazy. It's, um, yeah, is that the John day river? Is that the one yeah, the John day is, just up because I know us, that's yeah. an incredible smallmouth fishery, but maybe you even have a better one. It is. So the John Day, well, anyways, the sturgeon though, we we run out of the marina, anchor up, and you sit there anchored. And uh, you know, last summer, the first day we did it, my father-in-law and I, we brought we brought seven fish that were over seven feet long to the boat in the first two hours. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Now you can go get skunked too. It's it's yeah. fishing, right? Well, of course. That would be a good day. A bad yeah. day is you get skunked. A typical day is you might get one to three, but a good day you'll get. I mean, you get tired, right? It, it's a it's a fight. Yeah. And well, these I'll... fish, I've got video of um, that particular day. Um, these things are ten and a half. This one was ten and a half feet exactly. We measured it. You can't get them in the boat, right? It's, you're not supposed to, anyways. Right. But um, this, this thing comes completely out of the water. So you're watching your line. It's down like this, and you're just. The, rod just bent right and all of a sudden the line starts <laughs> doing this and you're like it's going to jump and it'll you know however far out there is that 10 and a half foot fish will come completely out of the water wow that's super cool his head. it is cool. awesome they have that weird mouth too that they uh, do. yeah that's that's cool yeah. well i'm going to come they, to montana uh, a couple of times this summer and then again in the fall so hopefully cool. we'll make that work out yeah so the bass real quick the bass fishery it's uh, the smallmouth bass are non-native here, so they're considered invasive. There's really no limit or season. You can fish them during the spawn. Um, we fish the main stem of the Columbia a lot when there's nothing else going on. It's just a calm day and you go fish the shores and um, it's really an incredible fishery. There's gotten to be bass tournaments now all up and down the river. Um, but the John Day is really neat. It's um, the John Day River flows through the high mountain desert east of here. That's on the Oregon side. And you can boat up the mouth of it from the Columbia quite a ways in a power boat up to the narrows where there's falls. And uh, that's a really good bass fishery. But the really neat thing there for a guy like you who likes the Montana scene is either drift boat or commonly more commonly raft fishing the upper stretches of the Deschutes. Yeah. So buddies of mine, they'll do three day floats down the Deschutes fly fishing for smallmouth. Wow. Now where, where is that, that part of the Deschutes? Now I know the Deschutes is also a good trout, river yep. right and steelhead. so is it in the same area where you're you're fishing yep. trout and steelhead and smallmouth in the same area 
yeah. The, so the Deschutes River um, is about 40 miles east of here. It's the Columbia. It's on the Oregon side. The Deschutes flows through Bend, which is a pretty popular mm-hmm. kind yeah. of mountain town, desert town. And then about another maybe um, 15 to 20 miles east of that is the John Day River. And the John Day comes out of sort of the eastern Oregon wheat fields and canyons. Um, pretty different rivers. The Deschutes, I think, is, is quite a bit bigger river. Mm-hmm. Um, John Day from this time of year on is a super skinny float, which is why it's mostly rafts, mm. not drift boats. Yeah. Um, but the John Day is a little more known for smallmouth fishing. And the Deschutes probably kind of your more premier trout and steelhead fishery. Wow. That sounds terrific. Yeah. That sounds yeah. terrific. I'd love to see that, man. I've never, I've never fished for smallmouth out that way. And uh, mm. I grew up fishing for smallmouth. That's, Did you? that's a, yeah. fun, man. It's, yeah. it's a blast. Everybody's so focused on salmon here. I've been here for 26 years, never smallmouth fish until just a few years ago. I'm like, wait, that's a, I caught a smallmouth doing something. I don't know. And uh, it's super fun. It's a great one to take kids out on too. Yeah, because you catch a lot of them, or absolutely, because a lot of places. I mean, you don't always catch a lot of smallmouth. I mean, they don't act like that uh, universally. Like I know that there's some places. Like if if I've heard a ton of people that go to the Boundary Waters in in Canada, and and it's every single cast. You know, you're catching a smallmouth, mm-hmm. and then but you know where I grew up, it was harder like to catch smallmouth, and and partly because they were mixed in with largemouth and and other fish too. Right. But um. You know, it was, it was, it was a little, you certainly didn't catch them every cast. Um, right. But you know, there's, there's some places where um, you, you can get them. And then I know some other people that are getting them, you know, on the interior there, like in Idaho and, and other places mm-hmm. where it's can be really good. Yeah. Yeah. I, I grew up in Wisconsin. I spent a lot of time in the boundary waters. Um, in my young days, I spent a lot of my fishing time on Lake Michigan and salmon fishing. But when I was a kid, you know, we get in from salmon fishing and the Chinook fishery then was so off the hook. It's like, you always got your limit and we're in by mid morning. But what we were excited about as kids was we'd get in from salmon fishing and we'd get right out on that little aluminum boat in the bays around Washington Island and smallmouth fish. Nice. You do it all afternoon, just catching fish, you know? Yeah, that's cool. And, uh, we didn't know it at the time, but of course to be catching mid 30 pound Chinook every morning is like super spectacular. But what we really got excited about was being in our own little boat fishing smallmouth. Yeah. It's funny. That's the way a kid, that's the way a kid thinks. I mean, we were just talking, uh, who was I talking to, uh, Captain Scott Brown. He was talking about his, his kid that's in the keys. He's, he's, uh, raising a, a well, two kids down there, but his son is great and is a really great little fisherman for being four mm-hmm. years old and, and he'll get him out and he's caught, you know, handful of bonefish and man, he could care less. All he wants to do is catch snappers. That's all he wants to do. Right. <laughs> and he could care less if he catches a tarpon or a bonefish or anything that anybody else thinks is cool. If the thing doesn't have teeth and it's not cool looking, then he doesn't care about catching it. He wants to catch the snapper because it's like every other cast. And it's just funny how, how kids think, you know, and, and then oh, as absolutely. you get older, then you're like, well, you know what? That is actually the most fun. <laughs> it is fun. You know, tuna fishing, we take kids out once in a while. And it's a two hour run out and then it's a long grind on the troll locating schools. And inevitably even the avid fishermen kids out there, are like, can we go in and go bottom fishing for sea bass? Yeah. yeah. Something and you that can't bites. deny the fact. Yeah. <laughs> and in a way it's way more fun. Yeah. 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 Oh. Well, I've made a lot of, I've made a lot of people happy with what we call trash fish over the years. Yeah. So I don't, I Absolutely. don't call any of them trash. I think anything that bends the rods pretty awesome, but uh, anyway, yeah. 
All right, Tom. Well, thanks, man. I appreciate it. And uh, we'll have yes, to make Tom. some of these plans come true. Uh, I'd love to love to do any of that uh, smallmouth or sturgeon fishing, both of those. Uh, I'd love that. That'd be really super cool. So I will let you know awesome. when I'm headed to Montana. And if I don't eat, get eaten by a grizzly bear, I'll head over. Sounds good. And then uh, I'll probably see you soon in the Keys. Okay. All right. Sounds good. All right, Tom. That's Tom with Burnwin. And uh, we'll see you guys next week. All right. See you. Thanks a lot, Tom.